0: Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, which we're calling TMI The Motivation Inside. I hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts. My goal in doing them is to give you a glimpse inside of how things really work professionally and how we here at SkyBridge and our friends work personally. This way, you'll get to see who we all really are. I, I will share with you the many faces of success and wealth and let you in on how. Not only how I got here, but more importantly, how my friends arrived at their destinations too. It's important that we tell you the story with all of its warts. uh, Because some of you that are listening, uh, like myself, if you're a younger version of myself, was super insecure. uh, And you need to know that all of us have that feeling. uh, But we also know that there's greatness inside of all of us. And that's the purpose of this podcast. Take you inside. Make you realize that with some level of super hard work and an intense focus, you can achieve success even though that road has a lot of bumps in it and is very winding. The possibilities are there. Uh, And frankly, in the great country that we live in, in, the United States, the possibilities are unlimited. It's all up to you to find what motivates you to get you on the path to success and what your passion is. I just want to remind you, or if you're a first-time listener, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor, and I'm the host of the iconic TV show Wall Street Week. It's on Fox Business on Friday evenings at 8 p.m. We run a replay of that same show Saturday morning at 9 a.m., but also Sunday morning at 9 a.m. So there's plenty of time to see that show. Uh, I'm also the author of two books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds. And a book I wrote uh, right after the Wall Street 2 premiere called Goodbye, Gordon Gecko: How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul. I have a third book coming out very soon. It'll be on entrepreneurship. It'll be at the struggles of entrepreneurs, uh, weaknesses, strengths, uh, uh, some of the things that went great in my career, but also some of the terrible things. Uh, First-time listeners, I'm not the typical Wall Street guy. You probably figured that out already listening to this preamble. Uh, I live two miles from my mom and dad. I've done that on purpose. Uh, I said in many of these podcasts, and I like repeating it, so I'll say it here, I feel that you need a grounding wire in your life. Particularly if you're uh, reaching for the stars or climbing mountains or looking for some level of success, you also have to know where you came from. And you have to stay grounded in your roots and realize that uh, while you are important and your family is very important, uh, you have to be humble. Uh, And you have to take yourself a little less seriously than sometimes you would like to. Uh, Some of the listeners, I think you can relate to that. You'll often see me. uh, If I'm walking around in New York and I don't have to do a television show, I'll be in a T-shirt and cargo pants. Uh, My kids are like bummed out about that. There was like a Wall Street Journal article last week about dads and cargo pants. Uh, I won't tell you the number of my children that sent that to me uh, with horrification emojis very, very frightening. Uh, today, I want to talk about a couple of things. I pride myself as a risk taker in people and in ideas, but also finding people that know how to help people take risk and reach their true greatness. Uh, something we often talk about often here on TMI uh, is how to take risk, how to take appropriate levels of risk. That's how to take what is perceived by others to be a risk but if you're working super hard and you're super well-prepared, guess what? It's not really that big of a risk at all. Um, we we want to find ways to help you unleash your inner greatness. We have hurdles in our lives. It's just a fact how we manage our success and how we manage our failures. In fact, I think the failures sometimes are way more important. Uh, they truly define us. They help us build our character. They make us realize that we can rise again. Uh, and that failures are temporary setbacks on the road to success. Uh, Today, we're going to hear from one of the fiercest leaders that I know and learning how to propel and use your obstacles to help you advance forward. Uh, She's quite the inspiring woman. I want you to imagine climbing the highest mountain on every continent, leading an A-team up Mount Everest, skiing across the Arctic Circle to the North Pole, pulling more than your weight literally to get to the South Pole. And on top of all that, being a best-selling author, a lecturer, a teacher, uh, and fortunately for all of us, we have that person joining us today. You don't have to imagine it because she's done all of this and more. I'd like to welcome my friend, adventurer, explorer, and mountaineer, Allison Levine. Allison, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: So you you have these superhuman qualities, but you're such a (laughs) down-to-earth, warm human being. Uh, All of us are overwhelmed by your accomplishments. I had a couple of our summer interns here that were helping me today uh, build the podcast, and we're all blown away about you and the essence of you, and what you've accomplished. So let's get right to it. What's it like being a double alpha squared female? (laughs)
1: A double alpha squared female. I don't know if I've ever been described that way before, but um, it's fun. Uh, no, it's um, it's interesting because if you look at uh, accomplishments, I mean, you just read off a lot of the things that I've done over the years. And while it might sound like I've had all this success, I mean, you just mentioned you learn so much from failure. And, of course, all the s- times where I've stumbled and fallen and, and not reached my goals wasn't in your introduction, but... I just want people to know that when you hear, you know, maybe things that people have accomplished, just know that usually there was a lot of, you know, stumbling and falling and being bruised and bloodied along the way in order to get there. Well,
0: you know, you're very gracious to bring that stuff up because it's super important to us here. I often find that uh, very successful people, when they write a book or they they build a memoirs, they sanitize all the things that went didn't go so well. And they try to build up all the things that went well, and they try to make it look like it was a 45 degree angle to their success and accomplishment and their self-actualization. You and I both know that isn't true. Am I right?
1: That is correct. And that's uh, one of the reasons that I wrote the book On the Edge, because there were so many times where things did not go as planned, where we didn't achieve our goals. There were expeditions where I showed up and I thought I was as Prepared as I could possibly be, and I still couldn't perform to the level as some of my larger, stronger teammates. And so I wanted to write about the times where I struggled and where I didn't achieve things, and where I walked away, you know, bummed out, feeling like I didn't accomplish what I wanted to set out to do.
0: Your your uh, your mountain climbing career is off the charts. I mean, every continent, highest peak. How'd you get started?
1: When I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers. And I would read books, and I would watch documentary films. Uh, And long story short, I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. So I had my second heart surgery when I turned 30. And about 18 months later, this light bulb went on in my head, and I thought... If I want to know what it's like to be Reinhold Messner and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should get my ass out there and do it instead of just reading about it. And if I want to know what it's like to be these mountaineers in the Himalayas and climbing these other big peaks all over the world, then instead of just watching documentaries, why don't I buy a pair of climbing boots and get out there and learn this sport?
0: are you like the reincarnation of Teddy Roosevelt or something (laughs) like that? You you had childhood illnesses and you, you built yourself up to this magnificent athlete?
1: Well, I don't necessarily think I'm a magnificent athlete, but I am relentless. That's what it is. And I always tell people, you don't have to be the best, fastest, strongest climber to get to the top of a mountain. You just have to be absolutely relentless about putting one foot in front of the other.
0: So why are you relentless?
1: Well, the first mountain I ever went to was Kilimanjaro. And I wanted to sort of celebrate a, my newfound state of good health, so I went to Tanzania just by myself, and I didn't have any money, so I used frequent flyer miles, I flew to Africa, I hired a local guide at the base of the mountain for $300 to take me up Mount Kilimanjaro, and it's not a technical climb at all, but it, you do feel the altitude because it's over 19,000 feet. you don't mind so, me
0: asking, how old were you at that time, 30? 32. 32.
1: 32, my first mountain, so that was the first time I'd ever been up at altitude. So you're over you 19,000 feet. by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, that was where I knew, um, I felt the altitude, and I felt sick to my stomach, and I had a banging headache, and I thought, this is it. I, I can't get to the summit. I'm going to have to turn around. But before I turn around, I'm just going to take one more step. So I took one step, and then I thought, all right, well, I know I'm going to turn around now, but I'll just take one more step, and then one more step. Okay, just... I I could take those two. Maybe I could just take one more before I turn around and then I would take another one. And then I figured out I had that voice in my head that could tell me, you can take one more step. So now when I'm doing something where I feel like getting my ass kicked, I can say ass on here, right? Yeah, yeah, you can say ass, yeah. Um, It's a children's
0: show, but we say ass in my family all the time. (laughs) And if my wife is listening, she's super mad at me because my two and a half year old is saying the word as well. (laughs) And and, and some other colorful words that we probably shouldn't say.
1: When I feel like I'm getting my butt kicked, (laughs) I I know I have that voice in my head that will come up and say, like, you've felt like this before, like you've had your ass kicked before, you can take one more step. But,
0: But there's also a survivability nature to Mountain climbing where you know you have to sometimes say, wait a minute, I may not survive this. Have you been in that situation?
1: Absolutely. So what people forget is that the summit of a mountain is never, ever the goal. The number one goal is always to come back down alive. You know, goal number two, come back with all your fingers and toes. Right. Getting to the summit. That's
0: related to the frostbite up at those high altitudes.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. The summit is the halfway point. It's only the halfway point. So you have to know yourself well enough to know how far you can go and still have enough energy reserves to get yourself back down. So in 2002, I was the team captain for the first American Women's Everest Expedition. And we actually turned around 200 feet, about 250 feet or so from the summit of Everest. We um, weren't okay, able so, to get so to the top. So let's go over
0: where Everest is. It's approximately 29,028 feet, or yes. is it right There's at some 29, th- Yeah,
1: 29,028. Some, some right. measurements have it at 29,035, somewhere in between there.
0: So, so there you are. You're at 28,000, Call it 750 feet. You could get up there. And you say, I got to go back. Uh, okay, so why?
1: So bad weather came in Mm -hmm. and I mean, trust me when I tell you that it is actually more difficult to turn around and walk away from the deal than it is to keep going. But what you have to remember is that when you're up there in these situations, you know, you have to think about how every single move you make is going to affect everybody else around you, and not just you. And if you do something dumb up there and right. you require some kind of help or a rescue, you're putting other people's lives at stake.
0: So so there's a team concept. There's self-awareness. Right. There's cutting your losses. You recognize that even though you were 250 feet, it could have been two and a half miles right. because of the way the weather turned on you.
1: Yes, and what people don't understand is that at that elevation, when you're up there in the death zone, which is any elevation above about 26,000 feet, and they, they call it the death zone for a really good reason because at 26,000 feet, yeah. uh, human life can no longer be sustained. Your body is slowly starting to die. Right. So at that elevation, you have to Just take— There's not enough
0: oxygen up there, Yeah, right?
1: you have to take 5 to 10 breaths for every step. 5 to 10 breaths for every step in order to move forward. So when you say 250 feet, bad weather, people are thinking— you know, why didn't you just run and touch the top and run back down? But you can't run up there because you're taking 10 breaths for every step.
0: You're close to outer space up there. Right. Let's talk about adversity for a second. Um, And if you don't mind me saying this because you wrote wrote about it in your books, you have Wolf's Parkinson's White Syndrome. Yes. Which is basically the holes in the heart that you described. You had three surgeries related to that. On top of that, you have something that's called... Ray Nose Disease. Am I saying Good it right? Good
1: pronunciation. Okay, see
0: that? That's because my, uh, my producer knows how to phonetically do things for me. Uh, <laughs> nice. a, it's a neurological disorder that causes the arteries that feed your fingers and toes to collapse in cold weather, uh, which l- could leave you at the extreme risk of frostbite, particularly at 26 or 29,000 feet. So what is it that pushes you? And tell us that w- what pushed you through that uh, greatness.
1: Well, having Raynaud's definitely presents its own set of challenges because when you're doing an expedition to the North Pole or the South Pole, you're up on a big mountain, you know, up at high altitude where it's really, really cold, you could lose the... The feeling in your fingers and toes, and toes aren't that big of a deal because you that can happen keep to you? walking. It has happened to me, but if you if you can't grip an ice axe or a ski pole when you're skiing to the north or south pole or something, that's going to present some serious problems and put you put you at risk. So for me, I just have to be really careful about using those just those two dollar hand warmers that skiers use, and I keep those hand warmers in all the time. But at altitude, they can take 45 minutes or so to warm up, so you have to. Just keep them in, you know, even before you actually need them.
0: You know, you you write about this, so I want you to expound upon it a little bit. Is it difficult for women to be leaders?
1: I don't think it's difficult for women to be leaders necessarily. I think that people need to understand that women may have a different leadership style, but really everybody has a different leadership style, even men. You know, one person's leadership style is going to differ from somebody else's, and I think that. Um, You know, women need to just get out there and step up when there is a leadership opportunity for them. And I think women also need to realize that you don't need a specific title to be a leader. You know, leadership has nothing to do with title or tenure or how many people report to you or how big of a budget you oversee. You know, leadership's about realizing that every single person on a team has a responsibility to help the team move toward a goal, and everybody also has a responsibility to be looking out for one another. So I always tell people every single person on a team is a leader.
0: And role model for the other people. Absolutely. You 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 know, when I say is it difficult for women to be leaders, I just want to point out to all listeners out there, I'm not trying to make a sexist statement at all. Uh, I absolutely believe that women are well-equipped, if not more well-equipped. Uh, it's just, to your point, it's about personality type, and it's about success quotient and style. Uh, and so leadership is available to everybody. Yep. And to your Look point. Look at Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. She's one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah, uh, 100%. So, so let's talk about your leadership for a second. Um, you mentioned the 2002 first expedition uh, to Mount Everest. You had to turn back, uh, but you had to go from zero to 28,750 feet and back. Talk to us about your leadership style during
1: that. What was it like? Well, what's different about these types of environments, whether it's a polar expedition or an Everest expedition, you're in a remote extreme environment. And when you're in these types of environments, uh, everything is heightened. Emotions are heightened. So when you like someone, you love them. And when you don't like someone, you think they are the worst person in the world. You know, maybe somebody's just whistling a Neil Diamond song and you hate Neil Diamond. So all of a sudden you just wish that person, you know, weren't weren't part of your team. So it's really important in these, when you're in these remote extreme environments to keep your emotions in check and think about whether you're just reacting to something because you're in that environment or you know whether you would react the same way at sea level. So it's so important to have a system of checks and balances. It's so important to have open communication with your team. I think that's what really helps. And mm-hmm. something uh, that I learned from a guy named Eric Phillips, who was the leader of my South Pole Expedition, where we were doing that 600-mile ski traverse across West Antarctica to the South Pole, he taught me the importance of empowering everybody on a team to think and act like a leader. And the way he did that is every day he would have a different person out in front, breaking trail, navigating the route, somebody different responsible for assessing you know, avalanche danger and figuring out how far we needed to ski every day. And because everybody took took turns in that leadership role, we all knew we could carry on if Eric wasn't there. And he had a big influence on my leadership style because now I know... You know, when I'm on an expedition, everybody needs to empower themselves to be a leader. And you need to trade off because what if there's only one person who's really good at assessing avalanche danger and something happens to that person and they're not there anymore? What if there's only one person who's good at root finding and all of a sudden that person isn't around? What are you going to do? So everybody's got to, you know, play a role in being a leader. And that's, you know, that guy, Eric Philip, really shaped my leadership style. So that's what I do on expedition. And you share now. this
0: with your students. Yes, You're a great storyteller, by the way, so I want you to tell us a story about two people I think you're close to, your mom and dad. Mom was an entrepreneur,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. dad was an FBI agent. Yes. So what was it like growing up with those two?
1: Oh, gosh. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. So uh, my dad is uh, one of my favorite role models, actually. So he was uh, in the FBI in the 60s under J. Edgar Hoover. He was the first FBI agent to ever publicly speak out against Hoover and the Bureau. And back then, you know, Hoover was an incredibly powerful figure, you know, Now, you know, Dick Comey's a great guy. He was fourth branch
0: of government. Right. People feared
1: this guy. So for for a young agent in his 20s to come out and say, hey, I think this guy's doing some unethical things. I think people should take a look at him. Uh, That was a pretty brave thing to do. And, of course, my dad was railroaded out of the bureau. Uh, And at the time, you had to be uh, an attorney or a CPA to be in the FBI. My dad had gone to NYU Law School. And so he thought well i've now I've you know ruined my career in the FBI because Hoover I mean we through the Freedom of Information Act we were able to get documents that uh were sent from Hoover to then." Attorney General Bobby Kennedy requesting that they be allowed to place surveillance on my dad's residence, tap his phone. Uh, They believed he was a threat to national security. So obviously my dad was difficult for him to get a job. Uh, So he decided he would practice law and Hoover blocked him from the New York bar. So my parents got in the car. They drove cross country to Arizona thinking that that would enable them to escape Hoover's reaches. And then Hoover blocked my dad from the Arizona bar. So my dad sued the state bar for admission to the bar and he won. It went to the Supreme Court and they ruled that just because my dad expressed his freedom of speech, you know, to speak out against Hoover, you can't prevent him from earning a living. So uh, he really taught me that if you see something That is not right. If you walk past it, it's the same as advocating it. So you better stop and raise a red flag. And, you know, it did cost my dad his career and hurt him very much professionally. But after Hoover died and they investigated him, they realized that my dad was right, that Hoover was doing all these things. So then, you know, my dad was in Time Magazine and he's written up in all these books as, you know, the first person to ever sort of raise a red flag and say, hey, somebody needs to look at this stuff.
0: You know, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase it. But, you know, it, 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 evil really spawns itself when just and righteous people fail to act. Right. At the end of the day, that's how it goes. And so uh, it's a real honor to hear this story about your dad. Uh, what are some of the other mentors and role models that you've had?
1: Well, I mentioned Eric Phillips, who was uh, the I'm winking team captain. at
0: you, though, because I want you to talk about your mom a little
1: oh, bit. Oh, my mom, too. Yeah. <laughs> She's Sorry, the, mom. I mom, to if you're out.
0: listening, you know I I got a mom, so I know what it's like. There, go ahead.
1: So yeah, so my dad was um he never got over that sense of being a f- f- you know fighting like tilting at windmills and fighting the system and calling out everybody that's doing anything wrong. And sometimes, if you're that kind of a person, you you're all you're not necessarily the most business-minded person and you're not super money motivated. So my mom had to go to work. She realized that she had to go to work to like keep the roof over our head and keep the cars from getting repossessed and things like that. So she was an entrepreneur and she started a business um, selling, it's going to sound like kind of a weird business, but selling high-end bed linens and tabletop stuff, China crystal silver and bed linens. And she started a company that sold to architects and designers and uh, ran it out of our house, but she basically was responsible for being able to pay a lot of the bills and, ke- and keeping them from losing the house and things like that.
0: It's a, it's an it's an amazing story, and you know I can see both of those people in your personality, so it's really cool. Does weight and size matter?
1: Yes, all that stuff about size doesn't matter. It matters um, because. How does it matter? It matters because. As a smaller person, so I'm you know five four hundred and twelve pounds, it is so difficult to drag a hundred and fifty pounds sled across six hundred miles of Antarctic ice compared to my teammates who are six foot two, six foot three, two hundred and thirty pounds. They can just pull a sled a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently than i can putting a 40 pound pack on me is going to require me to exert much more energy than it would require of somebody who is you know six feet two you know six foot two and 200 pounds so it's just you, you have you know and your steps when you're climbing the mountain even just your steps aren't as long you know aren't, so it I feel like it's a lot more work if you're smaller, but you just have to find ways to sort of compensate for any weakness or disadvantage that you have.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll speak for all vertically challenged people out there, myself included. Do you think that size, in some ways, your lack of size, if you will, uh, helps in a way? I'm not going into the Napoleonic complex zone. Like My two sons are uh, at the same vertical height as me, and they sort of feel super motivated by that vertical disadvantage. Do you think that's true?
1: I think it helps you find ways to, you know, find different strengths than maybe other people have. So for me... On that Antarctic expedition where I was really struggling with the weight of my sled and I could barely keep up with my teammates who were taller and stronger and could haul 150 pounds more quickly and more efficiently, I really started to beat myself up thinking, okay, I am the weakest person on this team. I am holding my teammates back because they're having to wait for me all the time. And you might think, so what if they had to wait for you? What's the big deal? Well, maybe it's not a big deal in most places, but when you're in Antarctica... The only way you can stay warm is if you're moving, right? If you're skiing on the ice or you're, you know, huddled up in your tent in your 50 below rated sleeping bag. So these guys are getting cold and potentially becoming hypothermic waiting for me. I felt terrible, but I just, I wasn't strong enough to keep up with them. And uh, I write about this in chapter six of On the Edge, and it seems to be everybody's favorite chapter because it's the chapter where I trained as hard as I could and I showed up completely prepared but I still couldn't perform to the level that my teammates were performing. And I found that although I wasn't as physically strong when it came to skiing, I became the designated snow shoveler because these tall guys – wrenching their backs trying to use a snow shovel and what happens is you ski all day you're completely exhausted you pitch your tent you're setting up camp and you have to build a snow wall out of snow and ice to protect your tent you want to barricade it in to protect it from the elements so it doesn't get destroyed well as a person shorter to the ground at 5'4 I could use a short snow shovel more easily than these taller guys who were wrenching their backs every time they were bending over. Great. So I became the designated barricade builder and I shoveled the snow and I would just grab that shovel and I'd be like, Hey, you guys, like I'm going to shovel the snow around your tent. And I remember Eric, our team leader said, you want to do what? And I said, I- I'm going to be the snow shoveler. And he said, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I love to shovel snow. And he said, come on, you love to shovel snow. And I said, yes, I grew up in Phoenix and I never got to shovel snow. So it was a treat for me. And of course I was completely BSing. I didn't love to shovel snow, but I knew that was a way that I could contribute and be a valuable member of the team. So, so that's find, what I did.
0: Find a role, uh, drop your ego and just do it. Basically, Exactly.
1: Right? Drop your ego, find a role. Everybody's got a sweet spot. And as a leader. If you can help people find that sweet spot, you will mm-hmm. often get more out of a mediocre or a poor performer than you would get out of them if they had been a performer that was on par with everybody else to begin with.
0: So, you, you say in the book that you've been scared out of your life on one or two of your adventures. Uh, on page 84 of the book, you talk about the Kimbo Icefall.
1: Yeah, the Kumbu and icefall. Kimbo
0: Icefall. And it, and it taught you a lesson. Uh, that you say is very critical about mountaineering, business leadership, and life. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but fear is fine, but complacency will kill you. Yes. So ex- explain the emotions. Explain the horror, and explain what you mean by so all
1: that. So let me just paint a picture for all the listeners of that Kumbu icefall. The Kumbu icefall is the first part of the route once you leave base camp. that gets you from base camp to Camp 1. The Kumbu Icefall is made up of 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge, moving ice chunks. And when I say huge, these ice chunks are the size of small buildings. And the Kumbu Icefall is where most of the accidents occur on the mountain. And what makes it so dangerous is that when the sun comes up and everything starts to melt these big huge ice chunks they start to shift around so you are in constant danger of being crushed and then on top of that there are these rickety aluminum ladders that span over these crevasses basically these big openings in the glacier where you could fall uh, where you could fall hundreds of feet to your death so between the big huge moving ice chunks And the ladders and the open crevasses, it is a super scary part of the mountain.
0: Okay, so you have me personally freaked out, and it's just a reminder to all of our listeners that my version of camping and mountain climbing is the Four Seasons or the (laughs) Ritz-Carlton, okay? I just want everybody to know, me, camping, that's with a white robe somewhere in a five-star hotel. All right, but keep going.
1: So in that ice fall, you you know, you're, it's very scary, right? Even, I mean, the most experienced mountaineers are nervous in this icefall. You are scared. You are looking around all the time. And what I always tell people is that fear, just a normal human emotion. Fear is absolutely fine. So don't ever beat yourself up for feeling scared or intimidated. Fear, I I use that to my advantage. Fear keeps me awake, alert on my toes, aware of everything going on around me. So Mm -hmm. fear is absolutely fine complacency is what puts you at risk. You have to be able to act and react quickly when you're in these environments that are constantly shifting and changing.
0: And, you know, and I just got to translate the fear for a second because sometimes on stage or even in a television performance or making a public speech, I try to tell people to use the fear as a form of excitement. Like yes. you're up on a roller coaster or you're, 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 you're doing something super fun and have it propel you Uh, in the direction that you want to go in, as opposed to inhibit you.
1: Yes, because fear is only dangerous when it paralyzes you, right? So just learn Mm -hmm. how to harness that energy from the fear to use that to your advantage.
0: So so you, you got a lot of preparation going into these extreme expeditions. So tell us about the preparation.
1: Oh, boy. So the... Only way you can really prepare for a big expedition is to get out to the mountains. No amount of swimming, cycling, running is going to prepare you. I mean, that's good for your cardiovascular health, and it can't hurt. But in order to prepare for a climb, you got to get out to the mountains. you got to strap on a pair of crampons, a backpack with some weight in it, grab an ice axe, and walk uphill in the snow and ice with a pack. So that's the physical part of the training. What I do for the psychological training— is, uh, and I write about this in the book, and it seems to be pretty controversial because people call me out on it all the time when they read this part about sleep deprivation. So a lot of the times when you're in the mountains, you're going to make a summit push, and you are going to have to climb for 18, 22, maybe 24 or more hours nonstop with no sleep. So I like to practice sleep deprivation so that I know how well I can climb on zero hours of sleep. So what
0: do you find about yourself related to sleep deprivation?
1: Well, I I like to practice it because I feel like when people don't practice sleep deprivation, if they ever have to pull in all night or look, even at work or whatever, if you have to stay and work all mm-hmm. night and you it stresses people out, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? I'm, I'm going to have to be here all night. I'm not going to get any sleep. I can't function without sleep. If you practice sleep deprivation, you can function at a, function at a fairly high level. So I yeah, so always been, encourage that. I've been practicing
0: that. a long time, but I find that I manifest some really bad side effects. So I forget car keys. I've lost my wallet. Yeah. I've, uh, I can't tell you the number of Oakley sunglasses I've had to replace during the Democratic and Republican National Conventions through the sleep deprivation. So what's your yeah. weakness well, when you're sleep-deprived?
1: I mean— <laughs> It is hard. I think you get sort of more of an adrenaline burst though when you're climbing True. and you can just keep going. But I like to know that I can do it. So that's why I practice sleep mm-hmm. deprivation. Now, mm-hmm. look, is it good for you to go about sleep a bunch of times? No, it's horrible for you. But I mean, I didn't write a book about how to live to be 100. You know, I wrote a book gonna, about how to get you're through you're the toughest to of be, times when be, you absolutely live to have to be
0: longer to. than 100. There's no question about that, Allison. Let's talk about friendships. And talk about. Uh, you write all about all this great stuff about how you go out of your way to network. So tell us
1: your I philosophy think there. Networking is incredibly important in mountaineering. People don't realize that. I think it's probably uh, one of the most overlooked things in the sport of mountaineering. So the first thing I do when I get to base camp on any mountain, very first thing. I walk around, I talk to every other team that's there, and people make fun of me all the time. They always say, oh, Allison, you're so social, and it's not about being social, okay? It's about the fact that, God forbid, something should happen to someone high up on one of these peaks. You know, something should happen to someone on one of my teams high up on one of these peaks— I need the people around us to feel obligated to help us. Mm-hmm. And there is a much higher likelihood of that happening so if you have... And building that symmetrical a, relationship. Yes. And I have a chapter in the book that it, talks about... it personal. Yeah. I have chapter that talks about rescues on Mount Everest and why some people are rescued from high up on the mountain and others, unfortunately, are not rescued. And it's tragic that that happens. It should never happen. But the reality... Is that it does happen. And and there are a lot of factors that go into whether or not somebody can even be brought down from high up on the mountain. But one thing that always works in people's favor is if they happen to know the people walking past them at the time. Because, of course, people who know you are much more likely to go out of their way for you and potentially take on a large amount of personal risk for you if you have a relationship in place with them. So put the time and effort into networking, you guys. You never know when it's going to pay off. I'm
0: going to overstate the obvious, but I think this is important. Uh, What you just said is really true about life. Yes. It's about your friendships, your business relationships, your personal issues. Uh, People that feel invested in you will go out of their way to help you. Yep. And vice versa. You'll do the same thing for them. Yep. Uh, You say in the book that ego is essential. Yes. So explain that.
1: So I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive, and especially if you've read a lot of management or leadership books, you hear all this leader, you know, leave your ego at the door. Dial back
0: your ego, put right. your ego in a jar behind you. So this,
1: this, uh, this thing about ego is actually something I learned from Coach K, Mike Shashevsky, who I know you're familiar with, he, and yep. he wrote the foreword for my book.
0: Spoke at our Salt Conference a couple of years ago. Phenomenal, phenomenal, public speaker, a great so human being.
1: I am on the board of the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics at Duke, so I get to see Coach K a couple times a year. Um, and I was at a breakfast, uh, a couple of years ago where he had just come back from coaching the U S national, you know, the men's basketball, Olympic things to do. And, you know, they'd brought home another gold medal, just another one. Right. And, uh, we were at a breakfast where coach was talking about what he looks for when he's recruiting that Olympic team, because we're thinking, you know, we're all sitting there at this breakfast thinking, how do you decide who you want on your team? You have such a big talent pool to pull from, right? Such a, talented roster in the NBA how do you figure out who you're going to put on the floor so he had such an interesting answer he said that he looks for ego and I thought well right because you don't want that right you got to weed those guys out and he went on to say no you want ego and I thought that doesn't make any sense and then he went on to explain it and it did make sense he said that when he's recruiting his team there's two kinds of ego that he looks for the first is what he calls performance ego he said I want people who are good And who know that they're good. He said, I don't want LeBron James to come out onto the court and and be a wuss. You know, I want him to be LeBron James. And that made sense to me because I thought, I don't want to be climbing Mount Everest with a teammate who's thinking, gosh, I don't know. You know, maybe this was just a big mistake. Maybe we're out of our league. You know, you want to be climbing with people who are thinking, I've got this, right? I've got this. So that's performance ego. The second kind of ego that Coach K looks for that's really important is what he calls team ego. And he said, I want people on my team who are going to be proud to be a part of something that collectively feels more important than the individuals alone. And that made sense to me, too, because... You know, when I was recruiting the first American Women's Everest Expedition, I wanted women who were going to be proud to wear, you know, our country's flag on their sleeve and be a part of the first American Women's Everest Expedition and represent our country.
0: It's a great, it's a great way to look at it. Um, and I, But in, in, in context, though, he's also talking about people keeping their ego in check, being willing to share with each other their successes, yes. too. Yes. So it's performance ego being you hit that basket or get up the mountain or do the required task, but also... Uh, Be calm enough and secure enough to make sure that you're sharing credit with others.
1: Right. And the name on the front of the uniform, you know, Team USA, is more important than the name on the back of the uniform.
0: Amen. That's a Coach K aphorism for sure. Uh, What listeners may not know is that you have a background in business. You worked at Goldman Sachs and later as Deputy Finance Director for a guy by the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) Do you see a unifying link between leaders in business and leaders in sports?
1: I do. I see a lot of links there. And it's funny, so I uh, was at Goldman very briefly. I it was I uh <laughs> was a summer intern there first and thought, "Oh, I'll never take a job at Goldman Sachs. This isn't for me." You know, I come from the adventure world and in
0: New York where were Yes. You? You know, 85 Broad. Uh
1: I no, we were across the street actually at what on West? What was the address? 1, near well, Plaza, two one over New Plaza 200 West, West 1 New Plaza 1 New York Plaza. Yeah. That's where I was. So, um I Always had this dream of running an adventure travel company, and i didn 't have a st- business background i 'd never taken any business classes, so I applied to business school and got accepted to a few schools and ended up at duke and I was so excited i couldn 't believe I got in there. I was so happy. And then I thought, well, if I want to learn business, I should go to you know Wall Street for the summer. If I want to learn finance and things like that, that's where I should go. So I ended up scoring a summer internship at Goldman. Um, and that's where I really started. And I, I went there after business school for a couple of years, too. But I learned so much there. I learned a lot about teamwork. And I learned about being a clutch player. And so that is something that's similar between business and sports, you got to be the clutch player. You want to be the person that everybody knows they can count on. And I felt like I learned that at Goldman. I felt like the people I was working with were clutch players. And when they said they were going to deliver, they delivered.
0: Uh, You know, I completely agree. I mean, we're going to just add a couple of things from Goldman. One was a legendary John Weinberg. I think I've said this before on a couple of TMIs. Some people grow. Other people swell. Make sure the kind of person that grows and doesn't swell. Think about that. Uh, another thing that it was uh, told to us, which I totally agreed with, and i 've shared this with my children, is that the team captain gets voted on by the other team members what 's the hallmark of a good team captain that he 's helping the other teammates on the team right. do better he 's less concerned about his own stats he 's confident that he 'll deliver, but he really wants to help the people around him or she wants to help the people around him. One other thing I learned at Goldman Sachs, which I also think is super important, uh, and the legendary and now deceased John Whitehead, who was Deputy Secretary of State, co-managing partner, uh, he said, hey, we have all the same desks and same telephones and same uh, pieces of paper to work off of and computers to work on. But what we have to do is we have to train our our shooters, our six-gun shooters, to the outside world. Many of our competitors have a six-gun on the person sitting next to them, and a six-gun pointed outside the firm. we got to take both six guns and point them outside the firm uh, and dial down the internescent political warfare. Yes. Uh, you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. It's such a good point. And really, I, I mean, I I have a mantra that I talk about in the book where I my I say the three words that describe me that I want to be my mantra is count on me. I think everybody should have a a personal mantra that sort of describes who they are and I really learned that at Goldman. I know I knew when people said they were going to come through they came through and I carried that with me when I left the firm. I thought I want to be that person in all aspects of life whether it's business or my adventures in the mountains or polar expeditions or just with family and friends. I want to be that person that people can count on. I want to be that clutch player that always comes through. And, you
0: know, uh, God bless you, because everybody says that about you. You've accomplished all of this. So what's next for Allison Levine?
1: What's next? I am completely stretching out of my comfort zone now, stretching my boundaries a little bit, and I'm working on a documentary film. It's called The Glass Ceiling, and it's about the very first Nepali woman to ever climb Mount Everest. Her name was Pasang Sherpa. She was amazing. She was not permitted to climb because she was a woman, and women back then, you know, she climbed in the early 90s. Women weren't allowed to climb Mount Everest, and she broke through all these traditional, political, you know, and cultural barriers in order to gain access to the mountain. She tried three times unsuccessfully. She finally made it to the summit on her fourth attempt in 1993, but she died on the way down. Hmm. And she left three Sorry children behind, that. but she left an amazing legacy, and she was the one that really broke through that glass ceiling for women in Nepal and allowed them to get out and climb these mountains just like the men were doing. So, so I'm working on a documentary about so her now. So
0: a phenomenal story. So where can our listeners see... This documentary.
1: So we are um, still in the process of raising money to get the film made. <laughs> if anybody's got a couple hundred thousand dollars, please get in touch. We need you. Um, but if you go to theglassceilingmovie.com, theglassceilingmovie.com, you can see our trailer. Get your Kleenex ready because it is an emotional story. Right,
0: well, we're certainly going to do that. In, in In the book, On the Edge, you make a dedication to three pivotal figures in your life. Tell us about them.
1: The three pivotal figures in my life. Well, I dedicated the book to my dog, Trooper, who is a 105-pound black lab. There's a picture of him in the book. He's amazing. He is I mean, the love of my life next to my <laughs> significant other, Pat. Um, I, You know, Pat's first. Look, I've been with him for seven years. Pat, but... don't
0: believe that. The dog is way ahead of you. <laughs> we love this
1: dog so much. She's, we don't you have kids. She's throwing that in gratuitously, Oh, my God, Pat. the dog. It's funny because the book's like, I'd like to de- dedicate this book to the most amazing, intelligent, charming, handsome, incredible, charismatic, living being on the planet trooper. And then I say... Uh, and to Pat, who is all of that and more. So he's <laughs> he is my rock, and he really is the most important person in my life. He's amazing. He's an FBI agent, um, like my dad. So he's been with the Bureau for a long time. He runs the Joint Terrorism Task Force um in Northern California yeah, for the FBI. Yeah, and, and shout then, out to
0: Pat and thank you for keeping us safe.
1: Yeah, thanks, Pat. And then um the third person is uh my friend Meg bretay Owen, and I dedicated the book to her as well. And she was um uh wonderful amazing friend that I met as a summer intern at Goldman Um, and we bonded and she was an incredible athlete um, played soccer her whole life all-american soccer player at Harvard captain of the soccer team I always said if I ever went back to Mount Everest a second time after missing it the first time I would go with Meg Um, but she passed away very unexpectedly in 2005 so she was uh, the motivation for my second attempt on Mount Everest where I did make it to the summit in 2010 but I engraved her name in my ice axe and brought it along with me so oh. to make sure she was climbing with me that oh, time.
0: That's a wonderful story. You know, I, I really want to thank you, Allison. Big shout-out to Allison Levine, and thank you for joining us on TMI. Her book is called On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. I recommend you go out and pick it up and read it. You won't be able to stop reading it if you start it. To learn more about Allison, please go to her website, allisonlevine.com. You can follow Allison on Twitter. And so that's at Levine underscore Allison. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for having avian. me, Anthony. Please subscribe to our podcast, TMI, with, with us here at iTunes. And please go rate and review it so we can continue to bring you the content that matters. And if you don't mind, please share the podcast with friends and co-workers who you think would enjoy listening to some of these insightful, wild, but also inspirational stories. Remember to email us. At any time, podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. You can follow me at at Scaramucci. And please don't forget to watch Wall Street Week. And if you're not watching it, please turn it on somewhere in the house so I can get the ratings. It's on Fox Business at 8 p.m. and and at 9 a.m. on Sunday, 9 a.m. again on Sunday. Those are Eastern Standard Times, by the way. Until next time, have a prosperous week.